0: A listener's note before we begin. The following episode contains adult themes and content of a violent nature. It may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised.
1: On April 19th, 2020, at 10.25am, a a sedan pulls over in the parking lot of Mi'kma'ki Trading Post, just on the outskirts of Truro, Nova Scotia. The store in Millbrook First Nation is closed, but a surveillance camera is recording. The images capture what looked like an RCMP cruiser. It has a black push bar on the front and decals on the sides. The vehicle pulls off the road and comes to a complete stop parallel to the street. The driver steps out wearing a baseball cap that partially shields his face from the April sunshine. He's standing on the same road as an RCMP detachment, less than half a kilometer away, He pulls off a jacket and a fluorescent yellow vest from over top of his RCMP-issued shirt. He looks around a few times, but he doesn't seem to be in a hurry. After untangling the jacket, he straightens out the vest and pulls it on. Less than a minute passes before he's back in his car and drives away. Anyone who was watching might've thought he was a Mountie, except that when he puts the vest back on, There's a handgun shoved down the back of his pants. There are too many stripes on the rear bumper of his vehicle, which doesn't appear to have a license plate on the back. This man is no police officer. He's the subject of a province-wide search. A man who has killed 19 people in about 12 hours. A man who has about an hour left to live. I'm your host, Sarah Ritchie. This is 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre, Episode 11, Collision Course. The search for Gabriel Wartman was frantic on April 19th. The RCMP was trying to share information with the public, but what it actually shared was often either inaccurate or too late to be helpful. Not to mention the RCMP was only using Twitter to tell people what was going on. At 10.23 a.m., the RCMP called Truro Police Dispatch, These calls had become more frequent as the morning wore on. We got access to the call logs through a Freedom of Information request. The RCMP let Truro Police know that the gunmen had possibly left some victims in DeBert, only 22 kilometers to the west. And now they warned Truro the gunmen might be headed their way. Dispatch called Truro Police Constable Jason Reeves at 10.30 a.m. to update him. Here's part of the transcript from that call. The dispatcher said someone texted them to say the shooter was in an RCMP uniform. Then they said, quote, So, I have a feeling that officer's not in good shape. If he has an RCMP car and uniform, where's the original officer? End quote. Reeves replied, Well, we're thinking maybe this guy had this planned and may have had all of this stuff created, right? Dispatcher, My God, this is nuts. Reeves, Yeah, it's fucking crazy. I can't believe they haven't got him yet. Seven minutes later, at 10:37, the RCMP called again to ask Truro police to lock down the town. The caller said it was a request from a staff sergeant. The call logs show the RCMP member said, quote, he could head that way, he could head to Picto, but we're not certain. So requesting that you shut it down. End quote. The RCMP officer on the call also said they weren't certain what kind of car the gunman was driving. He could be in the mock Cruiser or a different white vehicle. The gunman owned a white Ford truck. Police have told us that it was found burned in Portapique. He and his partner also owned a white Mercedes, which was at their home in Dartmouth. It's not clear which vehicle the RCMP were looking for. But the member on the call said the white vehicle hadn't been found yet. And a similar one was seen in Glenholm from a helicopter. The RCMP officer told Truro police they didn't know if the gunman was in uniform. They said when he showed up at a home in Glenholm, the 911 caller didn't mention anything about a uniform. This contradicts what police had learned hours earlier. They sent be-on-the-lookout notices to all police officers, and they tweeted to tell the public the gunman may be wearing a police uniform and driving what looked like a real police car. And in the last episode, we told you that two RCMP officers were so convinced of this, they shot at someone at a fire hall who was dressed similarly and standing next to a police car. The RCMP wanted Truro police to set up roadblocks to stop the gunman at 10.37, but they were too late. He drove through town 20 minutes before. Kristen Silliboy was working at a gas bar her family runs in Millbrook, just down the road from the trading post where the gunmen stopped.
2: Well, I was panicked. I was panicked and I was scared because the anxiety was already extremely high because I want to keep my staff protected during this coronavirus. So we're already on edge and being extra diligent about things.
1: As word of the tragedy spread, so did fear. Kristen doesn't have Twitter, but she heard about the shootings through friends.
2: My best friend, her brother is an RCMP officer, and he had texted her and he said, there's a crazy person out there shooting people. Stay indoors, go downstairs. So she texted she text me, and then my girlfriend in Halifax texted me because she had heard about what was going on. So I contacted my parents, and my parents made the decision. As a, as a team, we decided that it would be best to close And we closed at 10.40 a.m. And I'm grateful because my father was working. And if my father hadn't, if that man had pulled into the gas bar, my father wouldn't have hesitated to go outside to check to see if he needed some help or if he needed anything.
1: When they closed up shop, they had no idea the gunman had already driven right by 15 minutes before. And his disguise as an RCMP member was about to put more people in danger. At 10.32am, according to surveillance images released by the RCMP, the gunman drove by a gas station in the community of Brookfield. That's about a nine-minute drive away from where he stopped in Millbrook. These timestamps tell us he was traveling directly south on Highway 2. It's believed his destination was in the Halifax area. Police say he told his common-law partner the night before, when the rampage started, that he was going to Dartmouth, where he owned a home and a business. But he never got there. Constable Chad Morrison was working out of the RCMP detachment in Enfield on April 19th. That's about 35 kilometres north of Halifax. We found out part of what happened to Chad after reading the court documents filed by the RCMP. Chad arranged to meet with Constable Heidi Stevenson that morning. As he drove, he listened to the radio chatter as colleagues across the province talked about the search for the gunmen. Both Chad and Heidi were working alone, in their own marked vehicles. They planned to meet on the side of the road, something that RCMP say is a normal practice for officers in rural detachments. The meet-up spot was just south of a wildlife park in Shubenacadie. that's a town about halfway between Halifax and Truro. We have a map of the area on our website so you can have a look because the geography here is a little bit confusing. Chad got there at around 10.49 a.m. He parked his SUV and waited near a T-shaped intersection where Highway 2 runs north-south and it intersects Highway 224 from the east. We read a summary of what Chad told other police officers after the shooting spree. He told them he saw a marked cruiser, a Ford Taurus, a few hundred meters away. He wondered if it was the gunman. So he got on his radio and asked who was driving toward him. And Heidi responded that it was her. Now it's not exactly clear what they said to one another. This exchange is what's included in the court documents. Chad also said he was confused. He told police that according to the radio chatter, other officers seemed to be saying the gunman was in Brookfield, about 22 kilometers north of where he was. As that cruiser came closer, Chad saw that it had a black push bar on the front. Most RCMP vehicles in Nova Scotia don't have one. But there was nothing else different about this car that he could see that would draw suspicion. It was even driving at a normal speed. And knowing that Heidi was close by, he said, he relaxed. Chad pulled his SUV forward onto Highway 224 near the stop sign so they'd be able to talk. The oncoming car turned left onto Highway 224, So their driver side doors were side by side. And that's when Chad realized the driver wasn't Heidi. It was Gabriel Wartman. He recognized the gunman from the picture he saw on a be on the lookout notice. Chad said that at first the gunman looked melancholy, but then his expression turned. He raised a silver handgun, stuck it out the window and started shooting. Wartman fired his gun three or four times in a row and Chad floored it, according to the court documents. He took off heading south, got onto Highway 2, hitting a guardrail on the way. As he drove, he hit the ERTT button on his radio, the emergency request to talk button, which tells dispatchers you need immediate help. He tried to activate it several times, but he didn't think it went through. If you listened to our bonus episode, you know that a report prepared by Nova Scotia's police watchdog, the Serious Incident Response Team, found that the RCMP were having trouble communicating over radio. The report said there were so many people trying to talk, the system was overloaded, and transmissions didn't always go through. CERT found that between 3 a.m. and 10.21 a.m., which is when the fire hall shooting happened, 13.6% of radio transmissions by RCMP members had no audio, meaning no one could hear them. Chad eventually got through on the radio and said he was shot and was going to a paramedic base in Milford to get help, about a nine-minute drive away. According to the heavily redacted court documents, when he got there, he thought the paramedic base was empty. Chad got back on the radio and asked for help again, and then he realized, what if the gunman was following him? he'd be a sitting duck. So he grabbed his semi-automatic carbine and went behind the building, which is mostly surrounded by forest. Emergency health services said paramedics were there at the station that morning, but the doors are always locked. And they knew the gunman was disguised as a police officer. So until they could be certain, the man in the parking lot was a legitimate officer they were told to stay put. We can hear what happened from their perspective if we listen to recordings from dispatchers and paramedics at around eleven ten AM.
3: A vehicle just drove by with their signs on, no one's outside. You no know one's outside? Correct. Ten four. Vehicle out there. Copy that. Have a look at your tablet. The car number is the same. Four. it matches. Okay, copy that. Um, he's a the member there. He's been shot in the foot. Is he able to come
1: in to us? EHS said as soon as they verified it was him, the paramedics started treating Chad at the base. 122. Go ahead, 122. Member is currently with us in the base. 10 thanks, thank you. The EHS recordings say Chad was shot in the foot. Video of his return home from hospital a few days later shows he had a cast on his left forearm and a bandage on his right arm above and below his elbow. The court documents say police believe his hard body armor stopped one bullet from entering his chest and abdomen. Almost 20 minutes later, the paramedics got back on the radio to ask for help.
3: We are just about to transport the officer, but his vehicle is currently here unlocked and he has left a gun in the woods. I'm curious if you can get a hold of anyone to come
1: manage
3: that. 122 standby, please. Go ahead, 122. Clear code one, 12,
1: Before Chad was taken to hospital, he heard over his radio that the gunman hadn't followed him to Milford. But instead of relief, more tragedy awaited. Constable Heidi Stevenson was a 23-year veteran of the RCMP, a colleague of Chad's at the Enfield Detachment. She was on her way to meet him when he was shot. She grew up in Anaganish in northern Nova Scotia and went to school at Acadia University. She kept a tight circle of friends from her university days. One of them is T.D. Edison, who goes by Eddie. They met 30 years ago. Heidi finished her time at Acadia with a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry and Biology. When she and Eddie graduated in 1993, they both moved to Halifax, and Heidi started studying at Dalhousie University.
4: So Heidi had set her sights on getting into the RCMP. So she was taking some courses at Dow as well, and playing rugby, which she started at Acadia.
1: She had a setback when she tore her ACL and needed surgery, but Eddie said that wasn't going to get in her way. Heidi was determined to meet the physical requirements to join the force.
4: And so she was rehabbing and working out and playing rugby and doing her courses, but she was uh, just heads down, flat out, all the time, working on her fitness and... Everything like that. She was focused on getting it to the RCMP.
1: And she was successful. She graduated in February 1996 from Depot, the RCMP's training academy in Regina, Saskatchewan. A year later, in 1997, she became a high school liaison officer in Dartmouth. And that's where she met a teacher named Dean Stevenson. They got married, and over the years, they had two children Connor and Ava. Heidi's career with the RCMP is emblematic of how the force works. Everyone gets the same basic training, but careers can take a lot of different paths. For Heidi, that included time with The Musical Ride, a group of 32 officers who tour the country and the world performing drills on horseback. It's meant to promote the RCMP's image, build positive relationships, and help with recruitment. She also worked as a drug recognition expert, which meant testifying in court cases— and in general duty and community policing. Heidi was pretty well-known here in Halifax because of her time as the force's public information officer, meaning she was the one speaking with the media, and her face was often in the news. 1997 was a big year for Heidi, and it was an important year for her friend Eddie, too, because that's when she came out as gay. She remembers being nervous to tell people, including Heidi.
4: Oh, yeah, you know how I uh, discovered... To- you know, that I, it was the Ellen coming out show. (laughs) And so watching that and all of her friends, you know, saying, you know, it was like hitting the nail on the head for me. And so then when I came out, yeah. So I was really anxious, like really, really, really anxious.
1: But she said Heidi was so supportive.
4: I remember going to her place in Dartmouth and, uh, you know, telling her, and it was still a big deal back then. It's changed so much. Every every five years, it changes. Every Now, every year, it changes. But back then, it was a really big deal. And um, Heidi didn't even blank you know, it was, uh, yeah, she uh, was so accepting of differences.
1: Eddie said that's what made Heidi so good at her job. She was professional and wise without being overbearing or righteous. She had a high capacity to understand the subtleties in life.
4: She had a really good background, but yet all of her experience, she was able to empathize and sympathize with people who lived completely different lives, completely different backgrounds, and who were on the other side of the law.
1: Heidi passed along her drive and dedication to the teen girls she coached in high school rugby. The sport meant a lot to her.
4: That's something that really changed Heidi, you know, brought out that uh, a kind of confidence that nothing else can in you.
1: Heidi was also a devoted mother. She always took the time to see her kids off to bed, cuddling with them while she heard about their day. On April 19th, as Heidi drove toward the intersection of Highway 2 and 224, she heard Constable Chad Morrison ask who was driving toward him over the radio. She told Chad it was her. She wasn't far away, but it wasn't her car that he could see coming. As we mentioned, Highway 2 and 224 meet in that T-shaped intersection near the wildlife park. Just south of that, the two highways converge again, in one of those interchanges that has two long, looping on-ramps. And then Highway 224 runs parallel to itself in a north-south direction for some time. The important point here is that these two intersections are within one kilometer of one another. After he was shot, Chad sped toward that other intersection and headed south on Highway 2. The gunman ended up on the same interchange just minutes later, but Gabriel Wartman drove the wrong way onto a different ramp and coming toward him was Heidi's police cruiser. Their cars collided. This is what RCMP Superintendent Darren Campbell said about the crash at the last press conference the force held about the shootings on June 4th, 2020.
5: Based on the positioning of the vehicles, the damage to those vehicles, um, it's quite clear um, that... uh, Uh, You know, the gunman had actually entered into uh, a roadway, which was a one-way. As Constable Stevenson was proceeding in the right way, uh, the gunman uh, actually entered the wrong way. Uh, And that's exactly how uh, that accident took place.
1: The gunman's car had a push bumper on the front, and Heidi's did not. It's not clear whether that offered an advantage in what happened next.
5: While Constable Stevenson and the gunman's vehicles collided, We do not believe that Constable Stevenson rammed the gunman's vehicle. We can also tell you that the gunman's vehicle sustained more damage than Constable Stevenson's police vehicle did, and that she bravely engaged the gunman, and that there was an exchange of gunfire between Constable Stevenson and the gunman.
1: The gunman shot and killed Constable Heidi Stevenson. It all happened within minutes, Police say Chad was shot at 10:49 a.m., and the Truro police call logs show the RCMP called a Truro officer just 10 minutes later, at 10:59, to say that an RCMP member had been killed. Meanwhile, Joey Weber was also on the road that morning. He lived in Wise's Corner, a little community about 23 kilometers away from that intersection in Shubenacadie. It's about a 20-minute drive. Joey and his partner, Shanda McLeod, were talking about the shootings that morning. Neither of them really knew where Portapic was, but Shanda was a bit worried when she heard the danger was closer to home, in DeBert. She was getting the news from Facebook, and she said it's hard sometimes to know what the newest update is because Facebook timelines don't necessarily put things in chronological order. She remembers that morning how they had run out of furnace oil, and Joey headed to Milford at around 10 a.m. to buy some more. Family was the most important thing in Joey's life. He and Shanda had two daughters, seven year old Rory and Shirley, who's almost two. Joey was especially close with his sister, Laura Weber. They were only a year apart, and when they were young, Joey gave her a nickname that stuck. Everybody calls her Sis. They were inseparable as kids. They grew up playing outside in the fields, learning to work with the horses the family raised.
0: Jeez, we love the horses. Always in the pasture with them or in the barn or playing in the hay or in the hay fields, <laughs> and driving the trucks in the hay fields. of course. <laughs> we got to do that.
1: Joey's dad and his grandfather raised draft horses to haul logs and sell for lumber. This kind of logging sounds like it's from another era, but this is what Joey loved to do. He became very skilled at handling horses, developing the kind of patience and determination to break even the most headstrong animals.
0: Got to be stubborn with the horse too, especially
6: if the horse is stubborn with you. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be more stubborn than there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that was Shanda you heard there. She said if Joey was passionate about something, he went above and beyond to perfect it. And as far as how she and Joey met, Laura was eager to jump in and answer that one.
3: <laughs> in a hayfield. <laughs>
6: <laughs> when we were about 10 or 11 years old, I went to help my grampy, my surrogate, I adopted grampy, I guess, and uh, I met him there. And we were when ended up in grade seven together and dated briefly, but figured out we were better off as friends, stayed friends through our teenage years and stuff.
1: They reconnected in their early twenties. Joey was quiet unless you knew him, and if you knew him, Shanda said he was hilarious and warm. he was sweet he was uh,
6: he was a good looking boy <laughs> um, just genuine country boy like. You don't find someone like that, like, loves the outdoors, loves family, like, and trying to find somebody that loves their family, like, as much as he did, it's hard to come
1: by. Laura's and Joey's kids are very close. They lived right across the road from one another, and Laura is raising his oldest daughter, Emily, who's 15.
6: All his girls are daddy's girls. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and my children,
0: a, he was he was always involved with them, too. And, of course, I have the only boy out of the two of us. So we always said, sis, that boy's mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he's real good with the kids. Always taking them sledding or taking them out in the garden to the barn with the horses. Yeah.
1: <laughs> On the morning of April 19th, Joey was gone longer than he should have been. And Shanda started to worry when she heard something was happening near Shubenacadie, or Shubi, as the locals call it. My head was starting to spin because it was
6: getting on the time frame that he should have been home, because there's never a time that me or his sister didn't know, like, you know, something wasn't up, if the vehicle acted up or whatnot. And, uh, And then I seen that something was going on in Shubi. And I was looking at the clock and I called, I called sis. I said, Do you see what's going on on Facebook? And she's like, yeah, that's crazy or whatever. I was like your brother's out there and he's not back home yet. She's like, oh, cause she's, she's a little bit more calmer than I am. I get, you know, kind of wound up. I, I'm a worry wart as my mother always called me growing up and my guts were starting to go, so she's the one to talk me down kind of deal. Like, you know, he's probably just stuck. If this is all going on in Shuby, he's probably just stuck in traffic. Probably got the roads all blocked off and whatnot, right?
1: But Joey never made it back. His family later learned he stopped his SUV on his way home at the site of a car crash between what looked like two RCMP officers. According to the court documents, a man living nearby that interchange witnessed what happened. His name and his wife's name have been redacted. The documents say he told police that at first he thought the popping sound he was hearing was wind, tearing the siding loose. When he looked outside, he saw a bald guy shooting. He told police the Mountie was already laying on the ground just outside her car door. He thought the shooter must be a Mountie too, based on what he was wearing. But the court documents say it seemed funny to him that this Mountie was shooting at another officer. Then the witness told police he saw the shooter firing at the car. He called 911. Through the course of a class action lawsuit that's been filed by the families against the RCMP and the province of Nova Scotia, we know that Joey was ordered into the gunman's car and shot. The witness said the gunman took things from his car, put them into Joey's SUV. Then he opened the trunk of that mock cruiser and within seconds, it was smoking. The gunman's fake cruiser and Heidi's real one were left to burn. He took Heidi's pistol and ammunition, got into Joey's SUV, and left. The witness told police he left on Highway 224, heading south toward Milford. Meanwhile, at the paramedic base, Chad saw emergency response team vehicles driving toward the scene of the crash. The court documents say he heard another officer on the radio say, Stevenson is down. The emergency response team got to the scene moments after it all happened, and so did two witnesses who took a video from inside their vehicle which was posted to YouTube by an account called Haber MI. We're about to play you the audio of that video, and it does contain graphic language and descriptions of the scene.
2: We're right on the scene. This is fucked. I wonder if we right here. This is so fucked. He's in that car. He's in that car. They're dragging him out. Look, they're
6: dragging somebody. Oh my god.
2: That's a.
3: That's a a real car, huh? He just killed a real car right in front of us. Oh my god.
1: Oh god. Oh my god. Oh my fuck. This is fucking crazy.
2: Is he in there?
5: shaking. We should move. Like, what if he's alive and
1: he, like, shoots? It's tough to make out exactly what's happening in the video. The sun is really bright, but the witnesses described police moving Heidi Stevenson's body away from her car, which was burning. At 11.20 a.m., the Department of Natural Resources helicopter that was helping with the search for the gunman that morning got on the radio.
7: We're still overhead of vehicle fire at the Exit on Highway 2 is actually looks like might be a police car involved. There's other police vehicles there. We just wanted to bring to your attention. Okay, Coffee. Um, our last known thing is uh, to Halifax uh, off the 102 near Milford. Can you carry on that way?
1: It was around that time that Joey's sister Laura was worried. Joey left at around 10 a.m. for Milford. He should have been back by then. She got in her car, hoping to find him by retracing his steps. Laura drove through Shubenacadie, where the police had the road blocked off. She asked the RCMP if they knew whether Joey was there. She described his truck and what he was wearing, but they didn't tell her anything. At 11.04 and 11.06 a.m., the RCMP tweeted that the gunman was in the Brookfield area. The first tweet said he was driving the mock RCMP cruiser, driving southbound on Highway 102, the main highway to Halifax. Two minutes later, police said he was now in a small silver Chevrolet SUV heading south on Highway 102, away from the Brookfield area. Except none of that is accurate. The gunman wasn't near Brookfield. He wasn't on Highway 102. He wasn't even driving that vehicle.
3: Yeah, they had to make and model all wrong on the vehicle from the get-go.
1: Shanda said Joey was driving a silver Ford Escape that belonged to her mom. So when her cousin saw the description of the vehicle on social media, she got in touch. Uh, she said, what's your
3: mother's rig? I said, a Ford Escape. She said, oh, okay, because they're saying he's in a Chevy Tracker.
1: And I was like, oh, "Okay,"
3: okay. But my guts were still going by that time because he was supposed to be home and stuff, right?
1: Shanda's mom's vehicle was a 2007 Ford Escape. We've obtained surveillance images that show Joey with the vehicle at the gas station in Milford where he bought fuel that morning. We asked an automotive expert named David Giles to independently identify the vehicle in the images. He's a Red Seal certified technician. And David said it was a Ford Escape, likely a 2007 model, definitely not a Chevy in those photos. And yet police tweeted multiple times that the gunman was driving a Chevy. At 11.24 a.m., they tweeted that the, quote, "...confirmed suspect vehicle," end quote, "...was a silver Chevrolet tracker last seen in Milford." We asked the RCMP about this discrepancy, but the force refused to answer our questions. So despite the false hope after the mix-up with the vehicle, Shanda was still worried. Like many families we've spoken to about this story, the Webbers waited for hours for confirmation or official word of what happened to Joey even though they knew something was wrong. Laura called her dad, and he came to that intersection in Shubenacatee, too.
0: So dad went to the other side, where they had the road blocked off, and he, he wouldn't leave them alone on that side, and I wouldn't leave them alone on the other side, because we knew that Joey should have been home, and that was his route home.
1: As the hours passed by, Joey's family did their best to figure out what happened. They checked a bank account and saw that he bought oil, but nothing after that. A friend was able to check out the surveillance video at the gas station he visited in Milford, so they knew he stopped there at 10.38 a.m.
0: I called every hospital, Dartmouth, Halifax, Truro. I even went to Truro, even though I knew already in my head that he was in Chile. I just didn't want to believe it. I just didn't want to believe it. But I even drove to Truro and went in and asked for him Mm -hmm. because I was told that somebody was uh, taken there, and later I found out it was... uh, Morrison, the the constable.
1: About eight hours after Joey left home, police notified his family that he had been killed.
0: Yeah, they went to dad first, so I'm going to say at least six. Mm. Yeah, after six o'clock, they come and told us that they were, they were, they was were not a hundred percent sure it was Joey, but they were pretty sure it was Joey.
1: Shanda said, "What police didn't mention that night was that Joey's body was still in the burned out mock police cruiser." when they took it to be processed for evidence on the back of a trailer. She wasn't exactly sure who told her family that, but word gets around fast in a small community. And when the family met with police for the first time after the shooting, several weeks later, Shanda said Joey's father, Tom, confronted the RCMP with that information.
3: And Tom kind of said to them, "Uh, So tell me why you towed my son in that cruiser instead of, you know, having some dignity kind of deal, right? Mm -hmm. And they all kind of clammed up. Like, people were loosening their ties and sitting up and, like, uh, 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 kind of, they stammered a lot, so.
1: It's an indignity his family has trouble understanding. On April 19th, Heidi Stevenson was the first and only victim named by the RCMP in a press conference. The Force's Assistant Commissioner in Nova Scotia, Lee Bergerman, told us about her death.
6: Today is a devastating day for Nova Scotia, and it will remain etched in the minds of many for years to come. What has unfolded overnight and into this morning is incomprehensible, and many families are experiencing the loss of a loved one. That includes our own RCMP family. It's with tremendous sadness that I share with you that we have lost Constable Heidi Stevenson, a 23-year veteran of the force who was killed this morning while responding to an active shooter incident. Heidi answered the call of duty and lost her life while protecting those she served.
1: The RCMP met with Heidi's family that Sunday afternoon. That's a contrast to how the other families found out about their loved ones' deaths. John Zoll and Joanne Thomas' family say they learned their house had burned to the ground Saturday night when they saw a video of the property on our newscast the next evening. John Farrington posted pleas on social media to help him contact his parents, Don and Frank Galenchen. He said a neighbor got in touch late Sunday to let him know their house burned to the ground the night before. Harry Bond said he drove to Portapique to demand answers from police about what happened to his parents, Joy and Peter Bond, after trying to reach them for more than a day. They were killed on Saturday night, and Harry said he got confirmation of their deaths from an RCMP officer in Portapique two days later, on Monday. Kristen Beaton and Heather O'Brien's families learned of their deaths on Sunday evening. They said they waited eight hours to hear from police what they had already suspected. Many of these families told us they called the police over and over asking for information and were told nothing. Nick Beaton said those hours were torture. In a class action lawsuit, some families alleged they learned the news over social media. The RCMP said it notified next of kin of all victims as soon as possible. And that the last notification was made Monday, April 20th. Heidi's friend Eddie said she was shattered when she got the call about Heidi's death that Sunday. She lives in Newfoundland, so she tried to find comfort in mourning online with their group of friends.
4: I um uh, just disbelief and we were together a lot, as close friends on um Google Meet and that, but there's no funeral or even opportunity for us to get together. So it was uh, some ongoing grieving and talking, but I think a lot more about it now sometimes.
1: Beyond the pain of losing her friend, Eddie wonders how this could have happened.
4: I have questions for sure about the handling of everything and why she was alone. She shouldn't have been, should not have been. Didn't they know he had the kind of weapons? They had any idea the kind of weapons he had? that he was on the slaughter rampage at that point no officer should have been alone because the RCMP had already lost what four in Moncton and before that in Alberta and why was she alone given their past history with these sorts of events no officer alone
1: That same question was asked by a reporter at one of the RCMP press conferences in the spring of 2020. Why were officers traveling alone, trying to find a place to meet on the highway in the middle of this manhunt? This is what Superintendent Darren Campbell said in response.
5: What I can tell you is that uh, all of our officers weren't alone. Uh, We do have uh, some of our uh, police vehicles which have single officers within them, and then we have others that would have uh, what we would call a two-person car. Uh, I can also um, confirm that there were several other uh, resources in the area where there were more than one tactical resource uh, in vehicles as well.
1: At a different press conference, Superintendent Campbell said the RCMP have learned through surveillance images that the gunman actually avoided police that morning. He said the gunman's disguise as a police officer gave him an advantage.
5: I don't think it's difficult for non-police personnel or the public to understand that it would obviously complicate things. You know, I've been a police officer for almost 30 years now, and I can't imagine any more uh, horrific uh, set of circumstances uh, when you're trying to search for someone that looks like you, Uh, the dangers that that causes, the complications that that causes. Um, That, well, obviously was um, uh, an advantage that the suspect had on the police, that he had on the public, that he had on every person that he encountered uh, through the course of his rampage.
1: Police have called this an unprecedented shooting spree, but many people question how it went on for so long.
4: Like this guy, one person had how many detachments and provincial control in a twirl? For how long, okay, if that was Toronto Police or the OPP, would that be the case? So from a pure, uh, what we think of traditionally policing point of view, um, I don't think that's as much about the RCMP at all
1: what happened on April 18th and 19th will be reviewed. Whenever an RCMP officer dies on the job, there are automatic investigations. This is what Chief Superintendent Chris Leather said about that on June 4th.
8: There is also an Employment and Social Development Canada, or ESDC, investigation that is underway. And again, that is independent from the RCMP. ESDC investigates any workplace occupational injury or death at federally regulated workplaces. Investigators will take an in-depth look at overall response including training, equipment, communications and tactics of the RCMP. We are participating fully with this investigation. Another investigation taking place is the Internal Hazardous Occurrence Investigation Team or HOIT that has been created to investigate the incident from a Canada Labour Code perspective.
1: Heidi's friend Eddie questions whether an internal review is going to help.
4: Like the RCMP has been carried by its image for a long time and its literal proximity to Parliament Hill and that power of that national, federal, support and but yet if you look at happenings and all of these little detachments all across the country well nobody's looking at them except the rcmp themselves maybe maybe and but i question um i'm fine with the the force being blown up make it a ceremonial like the snowbirds you know (laughs) I mean it. Like, it shouldn't survive.
1: She's not alone in her questions or her conclusions. As radical as it may sound to say the RCMP shouldn't survive, that's something others have raised as well. Criminologist Daryl Davies has said over and over that the RCMP needs to change.
7: Why is it that our National Police Service, we're always asking these questions, from one crisis to another, from one tragedy to another, and they don't have any capability to learn so that they've put measures into place. All these reports that they say, you know, that have been filed, you know, that, that, that uh, you know, after these incidents are never implemented or acted upon. And I wouldn't trust them for a nanosecond to say they were.
1: Mayor Thorpe, Spiritwood, Moncton, Portapique. Four shootings of RCMP officers in 15 years all in small communities. In March 2005, four Mounties were murdered at a farm near Mayerthorpe, Alberta. They were investigating a marijuana grow operation and chop shop, but the owner of the property was heavily armed with semi-automatic weapons, and he ambushed them. The shooting was shocking, horrifying. Daryl wrote a report to RCMP that year recommending better equipment for officers, including hard body armor, better bulletproof vests. The next year, in 2006, two RCMP officers were killed in Spiritwood, Saskatchewan. That gunman led police on a chase to a dirt road where he shot three RCMP members. He turned himself in 11 days later after a massive manhunt involving about 250 police officers. In 2011, a fatality inquiry into the Mayerthorpe shooting strongly endorsed hard body armor and said general duty RCMP members should have patrol carbines. That same year, the RCMP started giving its officers body armor. The plan was to equip 6,800 officers with these new bulletproof vests within two years. But they were considered a bit controversial because they're uncomfortable and hard to move in. Then in June 2014, in Moncton, New Brunswick, a gunman shot five Mounties, killing three of them during a 28-hour-long incident. Another small community left in shock. Another review. This time, it found officers on the scene had trouble communicating, and they either didn't have hard body armor or they didn't know how to use it. Not one of those officers in Moncton had a carbine or training on how to use it. That report made 64 recommendations for better access to shotguns and rifles, standard equipment for emergency response teams, better radio communication and training. It noted that active shooter incidents are becoming more common in North America and Europe. The RCMP said it accepted and was implementing all of those recommendations in 2014. In 2015, 10 years after the Mayerthorpe shootings, the Alberta RCMP said, quote, all internal and independent external reviews have determined that given the circumstances, there was nothing the RCMP could have done to prevent this tragedy, end quote. Policing is a dangerous job, but it seems we're always saying these shootings are unprecedented, couldn't be prevented, that we would never expect this in small town Canada. After four shootings in 15 years, why is that still the case?
7: They've learned nothing, nothing from all the different incidents that have happened from Mayorthorpe to Moncton to Portapique.
1: The author of the Moncton report was asked to look at whether any issues carried over from the Mayorthorpe shooting. It concluded that. There were recommendations from the reports into both Mayerthorpe and Spiritwood that applied in Moncton. And Davies said that's evidence this kind of thing can happen anywhere.
7: People who live in Port who lived in that area, will never forget. That will be, uh, you know, uh, carved into their DNA, everybody that lives there forever in perpetuity. But these horrific incidents elsewhere, given the size of our country... It, it's not its not something people think about because they don't live there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, and they're shocked by it, but all they say is thank God it didn't happen where I live. And my response as a criminologist is it could happen. That's what you people don't understand. And uh, with our current RCMP organization, they're not equipped to respond to this type of crisis. They're simply not.
1: And here's something one serving RCMP member in another province said to me that stuck with me. If the police aren't safe at work, the public isn't safe. Put another way, if the RCMP can't protect its own, how can it protect the public? Davies is tired of review after review, report after report, coming to the same conclusions. He said elected officials need to take ownership.
7: We see, you know, we get reports then nobody acts on the reports, nobody follows up to make sure they're implemented, nobody seems to give a damn after a while, and government, in particular the politicians, just sit on their behinds, say nothing, do nothing, and then these crises happen, and then they come out with some ridiculous, you know, well, we'll ban another firearm, or we'll, you know, I mean, it it is exactly, you, you know, it's what government does best, and that's cover, you know, Cover, them, cover their asses. It doesn't improve public safety. It doesn't change or reform the National Police Service. It doesn't uh, in any shape or form discourage provinces from opting to get out of these Provincial Policing Service agreements because I think the provinces have had enough.
1: And some say that's exactly what needs to happen now. Provinces and municipalities need to end their contracts with the RCMP and create their own police forces. When Gary Clement retired from the RCMP in 2007, he held one of its top positions. He calls himself a proud former Mountie. But when asked what he thinks needs to change...
9: Well, I won't be popular saying this, but I'm a firm believer that the RCMP needs to focus on federal policing, which uh, they're not doing a very good job on. And Canada would benefit from having a strong FBI-type police service, a strong DEA-type police service to do an effective federal policing role. That would help municipal police services and city forces if we had that. So therefore, you know, um, if you look at it, the RCMP is on contract. It is not something that is mandated to them. They do it by contract. I think it's long overdue. I mean, it was a great system when I probably joined in the 70s. Um, But I think they've outgrown that today. Municipalities have outgrown that today. They need their local police service focusing on their local issues with management reporting to the council uh, or a police service board for that area and not being guided by headquarters policies. in Ottawa. So I, I guess if I was sitting on the board, sadly, I think it's time that RCMP get out of contract policing.
1: Christian Loprecht has also been advocating for change for years. He's a public safety and policing expert with the Royal Military College in Kingston, Ontario. In 2017, he authored a paper for the Macdonald-Laurier Institute titled Force 2.0, Fixing the Governance, Leadership, and Structure of the RCMP. Essentially, he said, the RCMP needs to figure out what it's trying to be.
10: I think you can make the argument that the RCMP, um, with all the mandates that it has, Um, is an entity that is too large for its own good and that is almost impossible to manage and to govern in the current arrangement that it has. And so what we have in the end is an organization that's a bit of a jack of all trades and a master of none.
1: You see, the RCMP serves a lot of vastly different functions. It's a national police force, but it's also not. It's in charge of security detail for the prime minister. It does intelligence work. Like Gary said, it's essentially Canada's version of the FBI and the DEA and also your provincial police force and, depending on where you live, your municipal police force too. And Christian argues the RCMP expertise is being stretched too thin and so is the manpower.
10: Um, and that works when you I think, doing uh, everyday sort of policing things. But when the organization is pushed to the limits, is pushed to the brink, in terms of very difficult uh, and challenging investigations or responses, uh, that's when we see the organization really strained um, at the limits because uh, it has, as a result of these many different tasks, um, a a whole series of generalists, uh, but can often be missing some of the um, expertise that is required to uh, respond to Um, some of the rarer, but um, in policing, most challenging situations uh, that you face in law enforcement.
1: He said there's a systemic issue of understaffing in rural detachments. Christian suspects that played a role in how the RCMP responded in Nova Scotia, and so did the force's attitude toward working with municipal forces.
10: Um, And so it means, for instance, we're not optimizing uh, for a community response, such as an active shooter situation. Um, because apparently working with other local municipal forces such as Truro uh, is not a priority or is not a, uh, an, an, an institutional arrangement that the RCMP has in place. Um, and so as a result, we see some deleterious outcomes for local communities at times when, they have, when they're counting on their police, when they're really counting on their police force to deliver.
1: In Nova Scotia, like many other provinces, the RCMP is the Provincial Policing Service. It's subsidized by the federal government and so it's been the cheapest option for policing in rural and remote parts of the country.
10: The question is whether that one-size-fits-all approach uh, with the debates that we've had publicly uh, recently, uh, whether um, serving rural no- the needs of rural Nova Scotia is really sort of the same, uh, the same as serving um, uh, the municipality of a Red Deer or Kelowna. Um, and is really the same sort of needs that you might have when you engage in uh, in federal counterterrorism um, policing, and so I think what gets lost is some of the um, s- some of the nuances of local and community policing in this one size fits all approach.
1: What's really interesting to me is that council in Colchester County, the municipal government for the area that includes Portapique and Debert and Onslow asked for a review of policing services more than a year before the shooting spree.
11: Uh, Truro County Police uh, Chief Dave McNeil and his entourage came in and gave a, a presentation on policing Colchester County. So uh, that's, this has been going an ongoing topic around council table for a long time.
1: That's Colchester Councillor Mike Gregory, who's also a retired RCMP member. He said the presentation from Truro police was interesting, and he thought it might be a good idea. But the county is covered under a provincial contract with the RCMP, and council isn't even sure what would have to happen next if they wanted Truro police to take over. Christian said it's not a simple process, and it won't come cheap.
9: Sure, you
10: could go to... True, for instance, and contract for policing, but that'll incur a substantially higher cost precisely because the RCMP artificially underprices its services uh, by virtue of uh, the province only having to pay 70 cents on the dollar. So really the problem for councils is they're sort of left with the dog's breakfast.
1: Mike Gregory said the RCMP has been reluctant to share information with council, and he's had concerns for some time about how many officers are actually policing the area.
11: We're paying for X number of police officers, and and uh, now they may have a full complement today, but there have been times that there have not there has not been a full complement of police officers because of uh, stress leave, maternity leave, uh, courses, uh, sick leave, and whatever.
1: Mike said it would be a hard pill for him to swallow losing the RCMP in small communities like his, but he said policing in rural Nova Scotia is not what it used to be
11: and and the rcmp i think a lot of the uh the upper management i'm sure they must realize the challenges in uh, in doing municipal policing uh because there's a lot of lot of talk around the veteran site uh that i'm part on the rcmp veteran site uh that uh, say that uh, like a lot of senior people or uh, people that are retired are saying that the rcmp should get out of and municipal policing and just stick to federal policing, let the the towns and the cities look after their own police force.
1: On the other side of the country, City Council in Surrey, British Columbia, voted in 2018 to end its contract with the RCMP. The Surrey Police Department is expected to be up and running as early as April 2021. In neighboring Alberta, the provincial government is planning to create its own police force to replace the RCMP similar to the Ontario Provincial Police or the Surete de Québec. It's commissioned an independent report on the possible transition by April 30th, 2021. The National Police Federation president, Brian Sovey says that's not a reflection of the RCMP's ability to do the job well. In fact, he suggested the Alberta premier and Surrey mayor are playing politics.
8: Well, on the one hand, you have a mayor that made a promise to get elected and is finding out that it's probably not the promise that should have been made. And on the other hand, you have a premier that perhaps is politicizing policing um, in a grander discussion about um, the place of Alberta in Confederation.
1: The Federation is a relatively new organization, certified in 2019 as a union representing 20,000 RCMP members across the country, excluding management. They're arguing the RCMP is the best organization for the job in regions that are looking for alternatives. In the prairies, they've launched a campaign called Keep Alberta RCMP. Brian knows people are asking tough questions about the force's role and the role of police in general.
8: How do we fund policing? What do Nova Scotians want to see in their police services, whether it's municipal or whether it's provincial, whether it's RCMP or not?
1: Do you believe the RCMP at this point as an organization has the capacity to provide contract policing in rural areas of this country effectively?
8: 100%. In fact, I'd say 120%.
1: And what about Nova Scotia? Under the Provincial Police Service Agreement, the Justice Department has the authority to order a formal review of policing services. But it's not doing that. Instead, the government is conducting a preliminary analysis of police service delivery across the province, looking at RCMP contract policing and jurisdictions that are served by municipal police. In a statement, a spokesperson for the province said "This is not a formal process, adding quote, "routine analysis of policing services helps to ensure we achieve our mandate, keeping communities and citizens safe and using resources effectively." Unquote. So to be clear, Following the murder of 22 people, a situation the government has repeatedly referred to as unprecedented, Nova Scotia's Department of Justice is conducting a routine, preliminary analysis of policing in this province. There's no timeline for when that will be done. But when it is, the National Police Federation will be there to argue the RCMP is the best option.
8: We are trying to do our best to advocate for better working conditions, whether that be more resources, whether that be better body armor, whether that be, um, I don't know, um, better boots at work so that they don't slip and fall. Uh, All of those things come into play when you start talking about trying to make it a safer world for our police officers. That being said, And just to be blunt, there will be more law enforcement deaths in the future. Um, We prepare for that. Um, The organization and the NPF are working on protocols for that. Uh, I hate to say um, it's almost a guarantee, but you know, um, police officers will get killed. Um, The best we can do is to prepare them for that and to prepare um, the organization on how we deal with that moving forward. So, are Canadians safe? Yes. You and especially are Nova Scotians safe? Yes. You have almost a thousand dedicated professional members who have experienced a massive tragedy, just like Nova Scotians and Canadians, and worldwide attention was drawn to their um, probably unwanted worldwide attention, and they have shown up every day, and and they have kept doing their job in a professional, dedicated manner that they've been trained to do.
1: This is of little comfort to Constable Heidi Stevenson's friend, Eddie. From her perspective, Heidi was not safe on the morning of April 19th as she drove toward a gunman who'd been murdering people for more than 12 hours.
4: To me, the irony is she is everything that the RCMP should be. And she is the one Who's lost? And then, as we look at everything else that's happened with the RCMP, it's such an irony that it was this symbol of everything good that was lost.
1: Laura Weber and Shanda McLeod are still struggling to make sense of their loss, too. They said the days after April 19th were a blur. All they can remember is being on the phone with each other for hours on end.
0: Yeah, I think uh, probably four o'clock in the morning yeah. for three or four nights in a row. Just yeah. on the phone because with Shanda or Shanda with me. because it Just the closest
1: thing to Joey we had. Three weeks later, in the middle of their grief, Shanda got some unexpected news.
6: Yeah, I found out Mother's Day weekend that I was pregnant. I had just thought things had, you know, took a hiatus because of all the stress I was under and whatnot. And then I got to looking at dates and I called sis. And <laughs> I said, um, I might need a pregnancy test. And so she went and got one and sure enough, and she came Christmas Day.
1: Lynn is her name. She's two months old now. The questions Joey's family are left with are the same as many other families we've spoken to. Why did it take the police so long to catch up with the gunmen? Why weren't the roads blocked off? How did this go on for more than 13 hours? Shanda is focused on raising her daughters without the man who was her partner of almost 15 years.
2: It's
6: been tough, but I can hear Joey. I hear you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, he called me mom. He said, you got to do it, Mom. You gotta, I can hear him. You just got to do it for these girls.
1: Just after 11 a.m., the gunman drove Joey Weber's SUV away from the scene of the crash. The 13-hour-long rampage was nearly over.
7: DNR chopper. DNR helicopter from Coyce command post. Do copy? Yeah, out Roger, we have the courts of the suspect down at the Enfield Big off of uh, Exit 11,
1: But for the families of the victims, the end of the killing spree was the beginning of a long and painful process in the courts and in the streets as they demand change and accountability. That's next time on 13 Hours. Thank you so much for joining us this week. 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre is written and produced by me, Sarah Ritchie, and Alex Kress. Our story producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and audio production by Rob Johnston. Editing assistance from Neil Benedict and Greg Schott. Additional reporting for this episode by Global News investigative reporter Brian Hill. Special thanks to Mike D'Souza, managing editor for the Global News investigative unit. I'd love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing 13 Hours on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We have much more on our website, including articles, maps, and photos. All of that written and curated by Brian Hill, Alex Kress, and me. Just head to globalnews.ca slash 13 hours. You can also find us on Instagram at 13 Hours Podcast. If you have a question about this episode or series, please get in touch on social media or by email at 13hours at I'd love to hear from you. Our contact information is in the show notes too. Thanks again for listening. Please join us next time.